ಓಸುದೇವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣೂರಮರ್ದನ ಪರಮಂದ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು ಸೊ ಇನ್ ದ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತಾ ವಿ ಆರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿಂಗ್ ದ ಸೆಕೆಂಡ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಶ್ರೀ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಜಸ್ಟ್ ಗಿವೆನ್ ದಿ ಇಸೆಂಟ್ರಲ್ ಟೀಚಿಂಗ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ದಿ ಆತ್ಮನ್ ದಿ ಆತ್ಮನ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ದ ಸೆಲ್ಫ್ ಅಸ್ ವಾಟ್ ಈಸ್ ಅವರ್ ರಿಯಲ್ ನೇಚರ್ ವೇದಾಂತ ಇನ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಸೆನ್ಸ್ ಇಸ್ ವೆರಿ ಸಿಂಪಲ್ ಇಟ್ ಸೇಸ್ ದಟ್ ವಿ ಡೂ ನಾಟ್ ಟ್ರೂಲಿ ನೋ ವಾಟ್ ವಿ ಆರ್ ವಾಟ್ ಈಸ್ ದೇರ್ ಹಿಯರ್ ವಿ ಥಿಂಕ್ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಅ ಬಾಡಿ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಬಟ್ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಸಮಥಿಂಗ್ ಫಾರ್ ಮೋರ್ ದೆನ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಫಾರ್ ಡೀಪರ್ ದೆನ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಐ ಲೈಕ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ಸೇಯಿಂಗ್ that uh, what is behind you and what is yet in front of you is as nothing compared to what is within you what is behind you all your past what is yet ahead of you whatever is going to happen in life we think these are the important things my past and my future that's what's important none of that is anything compared it's it's insignificant compared to what is within you what is within us is there's nothing compared to what is within within uh, us i think i must have told this joke earlier it happened a uh, year before last in santa barbara i had quoted this thing more than once and so somebody left a card in the ashram saying that um and the card itself says at the top of the card it was not handwritten it was printed uh what is behind you and what is ahead of you is as nothing compared to what is within you and inside the card it says and what is within the freezer <laughs> so we rushed and saw in the freezer somebody had left ice cream in the freezer <laughs> but the atman the doctrine of the atman is that if we would truly know what we are then all our problems would be solved we are trying to solve the problems in a worldly way but the real solution is a spiritual solution and that spiritual solution is a knowledge of what i am what am i what what did we learn uh, sri krishna said from verses 12 onwards first of all most important again and again sri krishna has been saying this you are immortal you are not born with the birth of the body you do not die with the death of the body uh, nitya avinashi indestructible he said weapons cannot cleave it the water cannot drown it and fire cannot burn it it means the atman you the self indestructible immortal then we saw that other verse um 16th verse which says nasato vidyate bhava a very profound verse which implies not only are you eternal immortal but this reality which you are is the only reality of the universe the atman is real the anatman is an appearance the self is the reality of which the not self not self other than you whatever you experience is an appearance of yourself you are the reality of this universe don't feel all that happy by you i don't mean you the person the spiritual reality which is our common spiritual heritage that's what i mean um sometimes i feel people like vedanta classes because it keeps saying nice and cool things about you 
But remember, the you they talk about here is the spiritual you, the spiritual self. Then one more thing we learned here was Sarvagata, all-pervading. It's not that we are separate little bits of consciousness in each body and mind. That's what it feels like. Because we are localized in bodies and minds, we think, I am separate, you are separate, he is separate, and she is separate. No. It says Sarvagata, it is one all-pervading reality. In that, in that oneness, many, the, the plural universe appears. Like a dream universe. It's one mind. The dreamer's mind is one person dreaming. But in the dream you will find an entire world. Then what else did we learn? We learned Aprameya. Uh, it is not an object of any pramana, of the sources of knowledge. You can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it. It cannot be inferred by, um, by, by the mind and so on. It's not an object to these sources of knowledge. Aprameya. It is not a doer nor an experiencer of the results of action. In Sanskrit, akarta bhokta. And we, we did all this. And then, now, we are on the 26th verse. Here, Sri Krishna sums up the teaching. Um, by the way of summation, he says, he acknowledges how difficult it is. If you really think about it, it's stunning. We think we are the body. It shows us you're not the body. We think we are this person in the body. You are not this person. You are not denying that it's there, but you are not it. And it says you are an infinite, immortal, spiritual being. Consciousness itself, being itself, the absolute. So it's a tremendous fact. Somebody said actually it's easier to believe in God than to believe this. It's about you. But still it's so difficult to believe this about myself. I can still believe that there must be some kind of God. But this is so much, so tremendous. And yet it is you and it can be realized. Not a matter of just belief. Definitely not. Vedanta aims to educate us, to show us how this is true. Um, last week, I was at the University of Michigan, uh, there was a symposium on Advaita Vedanta and education, ancient wisdom and modern education. I think they've put up the videos online, you can see. So I gave a talk about this very same thing, about knowing oneself. But you see, Shankara's Advaita Vedanta is a pedagogy, is a methodology of teaching. It's a way to show us a truth about ourselves. Or not one way, many ways are there. But basically to show us so that we have this insight that aha moment, oh, this is what I am. Then all your problems are solved, not externally. Everything that is there externally will continue, but it, it's no longer of any consequence to you. You are set free. So that's the goal of Vedanta. Now it's very difficult, difficult to, to believe first of all, and then to make the breakthrough. Difficult even to take seriously. So Sri Krishna, he says it's Quite possible that you don't believe any of it. He thinks, uh, Sri, uh, he thinks that Arjuna probably is not getting it. You know, good teachers, you might think they're like mind readers. You don't have to be. If you have taught in school, you know, especially grade school or kindergarten, one look into the faces of the kids and you know whether they're listening, whether they get it or they're thinking of something else. It's very easy. If you have been teaching for a long time, you don't have to be a telepath. I remember one of the uh, finest teachers I ever met. He's a great scholar of Vedanta and he's a professor of physics too. 
So, <laughs> very formidable. Um, his name is K. Ramasubramaniam. He's in IIT, Mumbai. Um, but one thing I liked about his teaching was I attended some of his classes as a, a young monk. He was trained under, under the Sringeri Shankaracharya uh, directly. So he was teaching us an abstruse text of Vedanta. And I still remember what was startling about his teaching was he was absolutely, he knew what you were thinking. And one disconcerting um, habit he had was he would walk around speaking. Oh, his classes were very interesting, long classes, but you had to, you had to be hyper alert uh, because the moment you were not alert, he would notice. He's this tall, thin man with blazing eyes. He would notice and focus those, that pair of blazing eyes on you and he would rush towards you literally and say, yes, tell me what I said. Or ask a question related to what he was saying. Ask a question related to what he was saying. He just point to you, yes. So I've had my share of tough teachers. There's one teacher, a very great scholar. Um, I'd heard about his, it's very, it was inconvenient for me to go from the monastery to attend his classes, but I'd heard about it. So I went to attend one class of his. And it's a very small group of students. But all the students are they have all degrees in Sanskrit or Indian philosophy. They are retired teachers, people like that. So they're all sitting there. And I, I noticed why he has this tough reputation, this great scholar. I'm not talking about Ramsubramaniam now. I'm talking about somebody else. So he starts off the class with a 10-minute scolding. <laughs> he starts off by saying, I don't know why I bothered to come here. I look at your faces and I know you don't understand anything. It's a shame. I tell you, it's a shame. <laughs> So 10 minutes, we all sat like this. <laughs> but I realized it was like par for course. He would do that every, every time. So they sort of take it in, in stride. And he would tr treat them like little, I mean, you can't treat little children like that nowadays. They, they are in the 60s or 70s, the students. And he would ask a question, you would have to stand up to answer it. And he won't let you sit down until you have ans answered it. He'll help you. And this lady, I, she stood up to answer a question and he kept on saying, I won't let you sit down till you give me the answer. And she was giggling, but uh, at least did she, did, he didn't make the students stand up on the bench holding their ears or something like that. Yeah. So tough teachers. Krishna is like that. He immediately sees Arjuna is not getting it. It's, it's, uh, it's understandable. So he says, 26th verse. Atachainam nitya jatam Atajainam nitya jatam nityam vamanya se mritam nityam vamanya se mritam tathapitvam mahabaho tathapitvam mahabaho naivam shochitum arhasi naivam shochitum arhasi What does it mean? If, however, however means in spite of all this Vedantic teaching. If, however, you think that it, the self, you, you are born with the birth of the body and you die with the death of the body, even then, O mighty armed one, you ought not to grieve for it. What is he doing? He's taking a different stance now. He's coming down a couple of steps as it were. 
Instead of talking about an immortal consciousness, the one reality of the universe beyond all senses or, or sources of knowledge, uh, a transcendent non-actor, non-experiencing awareness, instead of talking of that, he says, just as you know yourself right now, you think, if you think that you are born, people are born with the birth of their body and people die with the death of the body. The self is, comes up with the birth of the body and the self dies with the death of the body. Even then, you, sh you should not be shaken by this, by death. Why not? We'll come to that. But before that, it's interesting to think, what point of view is this? What point of view is this? There are different candidates. I'll give you two which I've heard and I'll tell you what I think. One is the materialist. That's the most common point of view, say today for example. And all throughout history in every civilization, including the ancient Vedic civilization, there have been materialists who say, all this is nonsense. Body is all that exists. Matter is all that exists. And we are living matter. We are born and in this body we exist, and when the body goes, we are finished. That's it. There's nothing before this, nothing after this. As far as you are concerned, the self is concerned, Atman. The Atman is nothing but the body. So this view was called the view of the Charvaka. Charvaka, the ancient Indian materialists. Literally, the Sanskrit word Charvaka comes from Charuvaka. Sweet talk. Sweet talk means it's the most acceptable, easy kind of philosophy. So what was their recommendation? Since you are born with the birth of the body and you die with the death of the body, make use of the time you have got. Eat, drink and be merry. So they are the, there's an Indian version to that. We, many people, we have heard of it. Yavad jivet, sukam jivet, rinam kritva, ghritam pivet, basmi bhutasya dehasya punaragamanam kuta. So it, there are verses. There are verses of these ancient materialists. What do they recommend? As long as you live, as long as the body lives, Live happily. How do you live happily? What is the recommendation? Um, this is difficult to translate. Literally means drink a lot of ghee. Now, today's closest would be you um, drink lots of Pepsi or Coke or something like that. Uh, you know, like have fun. Um, just uh, indulge yourself. But it's expensive. Where do I get the money? He says, Rinam Borrow money. Credit economy. Uh, yeah, credit cards. Max out your credit cards. But 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 I have to pay back then. She says no. You don't have to pay back. When the body is burned, when you die, the body is burned. You're not going to come back anymore. Nobody's going to catch you. It is the universe is the ultimate free lunch. <laughs> have fun. What about my kids or my, my they'll have to pay who cares? <laughs> That's their problem. <laughs> we may think that's ridiculous, but that's actually mostly what we are doing. The economists, they talk about the price to be paid by future generations. If you consume a lot now, the price is um, in terms of debt, in terms of um, global warming, in terms of resource depletion, in terms of pollution. All that will actually have to be paid. But who will pay it? Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. If any are left after a few generations. Some people say it's only 30 years now. That might be too alarmist. <laughs> but, so, that is the materialist point of view. Materialist point of view. And uh, sweet, 
That's a very nice kind of philosophy. Have fun while it lasts. The problem is, according to all other schools of philosophy, not just Vedanta, every other school of thought in ancient India, except the materialist, not only the world will last, but you will also last. And therefore, what you do now, you'll have to pay the price for that. It's not that you get, get off scot-free. You will have to pay the price for that. So it doesn't really work ultimately, that kind of philosophy. And it's short-sighted because the pleasures which we try to enjoy right now, not caring about what we have to pay, those pleasures are momentary and they have passed away. We still remember and the price is still there. Yes. So when you talk about Vedanta, yes. Right. The question is being asked, what do you mean by Vedanta? When you talk about Vedanta, is it a generic term or a specific school of thought? Both. There is specifically, when I'm explaining the Bhagavad Gita, or in fact any other scripture, the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, Brahma Sutras, whatever it is, or the texts which we are studying, the Mandukya Karika, um, Aparokshanubhuti, I'm referring to a particular school of Vedanta which is Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta of Shankaracharya. So it's an ancient uh, school. It's actually, the traditionalists will be annoyed if I say it's a non-dual Vedanta of Shankaracharya. Shankaracharya in the tradition is called Bhashyakara, the great commentator. But the texts of the school and the school itself predates Shankaracharya by centuries, if not millennia. So that's the school I'm referring to and there's a reason why I'm referring to that school because that's the philosophical foundation of the order I belong to, the Ramakrishna order. But also, having said that, there are many other schools of Vedanta. There is Vishishta Dvaita of Ramanuja, there is the Dvaita, the dualistic school of Madhva, there is the Dvaita Dvaita of Nimbarkacharya, there is the uh, Shuddha Dvaita of um, Vallabhacharya, there is the Achintya Bheda Bhed, whose descendants are the Hare Krishnas. So, um, so there are, there's a whole series of Vedantic schools. Now, one thing which Swami Vivekananda and the early Swamis did when they came here, they presented the combined spiritual heritage of India as Vedanta. So, for example, this is the Vedanta Society of New York. But the first publication which came out from here, very famous, Swami Vivekananda's Raja Yoga. But it's actually a commentary on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, which is the yoga school of philosophy, which is distinct from the Vedanta. It's not even a school of Vedanta. So the entire, uh, the the philosophy of meditation, uh, the bhakti schools, and the jnana schools, all of them were taught by the early Swamis, and the general name was Vedanta. There is nothing wrong in that because if you go back to India also and if you look at Hinduism, modern Hinduism, you will find most of the practicing Hindus, their uh, philosophical origins lie in some school of the Vedanta or the other. Nyaya, Vaisheshika, the school of ancient school, uh, the logicians um, uh, or the Sankhya school or the yoga school of Patanjali, these are more theoretical, uh, academic now than actually practiced. 
people practice them but as they, but if you ask them there are scholars of nyaya for example logic but if you ask actually ask the scholar of nyaya in india today what you, what are you practicing are you practicing the nyaya sutras of gautama in your day to day <laughs> no 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 he'll probably turn out to be a devotee of krishna or something like that so those the shri vaishnavas the madhvas in karnataka the, uh, the even say for example the swami narayan sect in uh, of of gujarat um now all over the world or uh, the pushti marga in in um, uh, gujarat again the, the different schools the uh, the iskon the hari krishna so all of these are the the modern phase of hinduism if you probe if you probe you will come across some school of vedanta as the basis so in a general term vedanta means the spiritual heritage of india today the ph- philosophical foundations of modern hinduism but if you say specifically i would like to pin you down to one school then clearly it is the advaita vedanta of shankara but not in an exclusive sense you can do that in an exclusivist sense like totapuri the uh, guru of sri ramakrishna only advaita vedanta nothing else so we don't do that Does that answer your question? Yes, But it gave rise to two more questions. I'm coming to you. <laughs> you first and then then she can ask. Yes. Uh, what is the link between Sri Vidya and Vedanta? The there is, but I'm not qualified. It's a very deep um subject. It's related to tantra. I didn't mention tantra. Tantra is an entirely um autonomous i would say school uh, in hinduism with lot of followers and there are many schools of tantra so shri vidya is a particular ritual uh, with a philosophy associated with it i really don't know enough about it to say anything more there are, you have to be initiated into it formally by a guru to practice it yes the lady here Yes. All right. I'll repeat the question. It's a good question that uh, a bit about Vishishta Advaita and Advaita. Vishishta Advaita is the qualified monism associated with Ramanujacharya and the Sri Vaishnavas. And Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. she asks is that the, the impression she has is that vishishta advaita is more devotional more theistic than advaita vedanta you're right um there's a lot to be said about this is a vast history nearly a thousand years of dialectics and many many texts written on both sides ramanuja who came about 200 years after shankara 250 years after shankara um he gave a new set of commentaries on the upanishads and the bhagavad gita and the brahma sutras he did not write separate commentaries on the upanishads but he wrote a separate commentary on the Bhag- on the brahma sutras called shri bhashya and a commentary on the bhagavad gita giving a different interpretation uh, from advaita vedanta the core difference is this i will not go into it because it's a it's a huge sub, a fascinating subject i have a book 
रिटन बाय वासुदेव शास्त्री अभ्यंकर कॉल्ड अद्वैत मोदर द डिलाइट ऑफ नॉन डुअलिज्म दैट्स द नेम ऑफ द बुक दिस वॉज अ ग्रेट पंडित इन द लास्ट सेंचुरी टू सेंचुरीज अगो लास्ट सेंचुरी इन फैक्ट एंड ही वॉज अ नॉन डुअलिस्ट बट ही वॉज रीडिंग क्वालिफाइड मॉनिज्म सो सीरियसली स्टडिंग इट हिज अदर स्कॉलरली फ्रेंड पंडित्स दे टीज डिम आर यू बिकमिंग अ क्वालिफाइड नॉन डुअलिस्ट क्वालिफाइड मॉनिस्ट विशिष्ट अद्वैत आर यू मूविंग अवे फ्रॉम नॉन डुअलिज्म सो दिस स्कॉलर अभ्यंकर ही सेड नो um i'm just studying it and to prove that he was still a loyal non-dualist he wrote this book in which he points out 30 30 differences no 22 differences i think 22 differences between non-dualism and vishishta and uh, qualified monism the two systems so there there are many differences um ramanuja who wrote the commentaries on uh, gita and brahma sutra in his brahma sutra commentary he starts by see you have touched upon a favorite subject of mine so i'm finding it difficult to stop but i'll just mention this uh, two things and then stop one is he starts his commentary on the brahma sutras with a tremendous attack on shankara's non-dualism he calls shankara's non-dualism the great opponent the english is is mild the sanskrit is more weighty mahapurva paksha the great opon- uh, opposing force or opponent and he levels page after page the first part of the uh, commentary on the first sutra is a powerful attack and a good attack it is said that sometimes you know when people do dialectics crit- criticize each other's positions they cut down a straw man they set up a straw man and shoot it down something uh, misrepresent your position uh, represent your position in a silly way and then makes it easy to dismiss but ramanuja doesn't do that what ramanuja does is give, he gives a faithful rendering an acceptable rendering of non dualism of shankaracharya and then proceeds to cut it down mercilessly in fact it is said among scholars i have heard ramanuja who attacks shankara non dualism the the method of attacking in ancient india the debate was called vada vada means debate one of the rules of vada was if i am going to attack you to criticize your position first i must state your position to your satisfaction what a beautiful rule you see it would prevent so many quarrels <laughs> normally when we are arguing against somebody we are not really listening to the other person uh, we are thinking of our answer to that <laughs> i'm getting an answer ready i'll give you such an answer what you are saying i'm not listening but here it forces you what did that person say and you have to repeat back what that person said to that person's satisfaction sir this is what you said 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 yes now i am permitted to give a reply what a beautiful thing it can prevent quarrels from philosophers to the household to boss and in in the corporate sector wherever anyway it is said ramanuja presented advaita vedanta so fairly in his introduction in his before starting his criticism of advaita vedanta that a newcomer to advaita vedanta can actually learn advaita vedanta from that <laughs> it's such a fair presentation a great scholar of non dualism shankara vedanta who is no friend of qualified monists he said to me ramanuja is a gentleman <laughs> but a thousand years of dialectics one of the great um ramanujai dialecticians was 
Vedanta Desika, I think. He wrote Shatadushani, a, a hundred objections against Advaita Vedanta. And a um, hundred years after that, or two hundred years after that, another scholar wrote Shatabhushani, a uh, uh, hundred ornaments of Advaita. That means refuting the hundred objections. And so on. This is the one thing I wanted to say. This is a very vast background. But coming to your point, um, Vishishta Advaita is definitely more theistic. Instead of saying, I am Brahman, it says, I am a part of Brahman. Brahman is the whole of which all of us, we are parts. So the world is a part of Brahman. You and I, we are parts of Brahman. And what do you have to do? Knowledge is helpful to realize that we are a part of Brahman. I am a part of Brahman, that is knowledge. Now, I depart, what will be my relation to the whole? Knowledge or devotion? Devotion. You are a tiny part of the whole. So your relation to the whole will be a devotion. God is the whole. Brahman is the whole. And Brahman in, in Ramanuja's view is Saguna Brahman. Brahman with infinite auspicious qualities. If you get Ramanuja started on the qualities of God, then you have to have patience because he'll take a full page. Once he starts, what are the... All-knowing, all-merciful, all-loving, just, uh, uh, beautiful, gracious. And he'll go on and on and on. In fact, the Bhagavad Gita, Ramanuja's commentary on Bhagavad Gita, he starts off, the first page is one line, one single sentence of the qualities of God. He loses himself in ecstasy when he talks about God. But it is a theistic God. Not pure consciousness, pure being, beyond the universe. You know, I am, um, Brahman is the only reality. The universe is an appearance and I am Brahman. Ramanuja would, would plug his ears. It's blasphemy for him to hear such things. So it's a very, very, very devotional uh, philosophy. Yeah. Sorry for that little <laughs> lecture. In fact... If you want to have a deeper understanding of Advaita Vedanta, the original classical Advaita Vedanta, it's good to study Vishishta Advaita also. Because they are often confused together. Uh, the, the difference will make you understand both very clearly. Uh, their approaches are very... Um, they, because they sound similar, but they are not similar. Yes. Of course there is, but it's a different approach altogether. In Advaita Vedanta, um, the question was, do we have Bhakti Yoga in Advaita Vedanta? Yes. But what, what does Bhakti Yoga serve in Advaita Vedanta? Twofold. One is, at the preparatory stage, it is a very good preparation for knowledge. Bhakti is a support for knowledge. What will set you free? What is the ultimate? Bhakti or Jnana? The Shankara will say, obviously Jnana, there is no question. Knowledge will set you free. I am Brahman. And after becoming free, after becoming an enlightened person, when you again find yourself as an appearance, as an individual, an appearance, then God is also an appearance to you. That individual in appearance can have devotion to God in appearance. Their bhakti is an expression of knowledge. I know you and I, thou and I, are, we are one. But still, I am thy devotee and you are my Lord. It's a very beautiful attitude. Hanuman. He says, Srinathe Janakinathe, 
अभेद परमात्मनि तथापि मम सर्वस्य सर्वस्व श्रीराम कमलोचन ही सेज आई नो विष्णु सगुण ब्रह्म श्रीनाथ एंड जानकीनाथ रामचंद्र हजबेंड ऑफ सीता दे आर वन रियालिटी अभेद परमात्मनि एंड इफ यू टू कैट इट अद्वैत इन नॉन डुअलिस्टिक वे देन वी आर ऑल वन रियालिटी वी नो दैट आई नो दैट बट इवन सो तथापि इवन सो For me, everything is the lotus-eyed Rama. That's that's an expression of devotion of love. That can exist after uh, full knowledge also. So Shankaracharya has no problem. He's not playing, a, becoming a dualist by writing all these beautiful hymns to to Krishna, to Ganga, to Shiva. Beautiful hymns. Some of the most beautiful hymns are written by Shankaracharya, who is a non-dualist, and he's not uh, playing two roles there. that devotion is an expression of his knowledge there is a very beautiful saying i don't know who it is attributed to the the roles of bhakti and gyana knowledge and devotion bodhat prag dvaitam mohaya before enlightenment duality leads to samsara delusion we get trapped which we call samsara this this problem we have it is because of plurality duality prapte manishaya bhakti artham kalpitam dvaitam advaitadapi sundaram after you become enlightened one brahman i alone am that after that again when this world appears to you as it will and you find yourself in this body and you're living the same life as before then what do you do how do you live life in a false world how do you live life after having known the reality bhakti artham kalpitam dvaitam duality kalpitam imagined or projected for the sake of love is more beautiful than non duality advaitadapi sundaram but who can say that only the person who has realized non duality so it's a it's a difference i and the lord are different it's your projection you know that you are not different you are one you have already realized it now it's a matter of delight what do you do when you watch a movie you know it's not real you know there's nothing to it but then you project a certain reality to it and then you react you laugh and you cry and you cheer and you clap all the while knowing the background is that it's a movie then delight comes otherwise terror you see king kong climbing uh, empire state building iconic figure um, picture um, you know and you say oh, oh it is so enjoyable and we watch in the movie theater king kong this huge uh, creature is climbing empire state building uh, and and if a tiny monkey comes in the theater you will scream and run away why because king kong is an appearance <clears throat> not there and therefore you enjoy but that monkey is there it can bite so delight it becomes delight after non dual realization madhusudan saraswati who was a great non dualist in fact the the acme of philosophical writing on non dualism advaita siddhi one of the toughest books on non dualism which is an a reply to an attack by dualists written by madhusudan saraswati master 
I, I myself once learned the neo Navyanaya, the neo school of the school of neologic, which originated in Bengal. I learned that I went, and we had each had to stand up and say why you are learning it. So he said, "You are a monk. Why are you learning uh, neologic?" So I said, "I'm learning it to read Madhusudan Saraswati's Advaita Siddhi." So Advaita Siddhi, toughest book on non-dualism. Madhusudan Saraswati. But the same Madhusudan Saraswati has written a beautiful commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. And in one of the verses he says, I forget the original Sanskrit, what it means is this. If the yogi in meditation wants to rem- remain immersed in the, in the light shining in his, in his heart, the unmanifest light of consciousness shining in his heart, wants to remain immersed in that, let him do so. But what delights my mine eyes, what delights mine eyes is the little blue boy playing on the bank of Yamuna. Krishna, the baby Krishna playing on the banks of Yamuna. Who is saying this? Madhusudan Saraswati. Non-dualist. So bhakti is very much possible. But the philosophy of bhakti in Shankara's Advaita and the philosophy of bhakti in Ramanuja's Vishishta Advaita, different. And in Ramanuja's Vishishta Advaita, bhakti is the supreme. In fact, the bhakti reaches its peak in what is called prapatti. Prapatti is complete surrender. Yeah. So there's a lot of discussion about that. In so if you um, if you are interested in practice of bhakti, there are many things to be learned from Ramanuja's. Uh, I'll take this occasion to share one thing in the Gita itself. In this second chapter, one one more insight, beautiful insight which Ramanuja gives, which you won't find here. Uh, in the in the non-dualist interpretation, Ramanuja says, in, it will come in the Gita a little later. Control of the senses is necessary for enlightenment. It says, Krishna himself will again and again emphasize strict self-control is necessary for enlightenment. And then he says, it's only after enlightenment that perfect sense control is possible. <laughs> Ramanuja catches that. In his commentary he says, isn't it a vicious cycle? You want control over the senses and a controlled body, controlled mind, so that you get enlightenment. But that will not happen until you are, you are enlightened. And since one depends on the other, enlightenment is impossible. He says, dushprapya, it is impossible to get. Then, then what do you do? Then Ramanuja says, that is why bhakti is introduced. Moment you direct love towards God, the senses are automatically controlled. It's much easier to control, even when you're not enlightened. If music is spiritual music, you want to smell nice things, flowers and incense for God. You want to eat nice things, offer, prasad. (laughs) Everything is connected to God. Our actions are connected to God. Our senses are connected to God. Our activities and thoughts are connected to God. And God, in fact, the very word Krishna means the attractor, the one who attracts, the one who attracts our senses. Once you try a little bit, you'll find a tremendous attraction in uh, uh, attraction of devotion, of love to God. And then the senses become much easier to control because they are now flowing Godward. Those senses, are, they have no problem there. A spiritual life becomes much easier. Okay, last question. I will not answer it, maybe, but let's hear the question. You raised your hand? Yes. Yes, yes. 
Yes. Right. Yes. So that's why I said he's asking about the song Bhaja Govindam, which is very popular. Bhaja Govindam literally means, if you translate into English, worship Govinda or Krishna. That's why I said some of the most beautiful dualist, beautiful devotional hymns have been composed by Shankaracharya. But now you know that you, to to judge a philosopher, uh, a saint philosopher like Shankaracharya, you must take the entire body of his work. You can't take little from here. Many people take only the hymns. Then he'll turn out to be a complete bhakta, a devotee. But surprisingly, he's a devotee of, uh, of Shiva, of the Divine Mother, of Krishna, of Ganga. <laughs> he's de intensely devotional. But then if you take the bhashyas, the commentaries on the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras, then it falls into place. Basically, devotion is helpful. What he will basically say there is, if you ask, then why haven't you talked about knowledge in that hymn? Worship Krishna, by the grace of Krishna, you will get knowledge and get freedom. I'm not putting it this way. Uh, if you see the commentaries again and again, when the Gita, it will come. Whenever devotion is prescribed, Shankaracharya will chime in. Yes, this is great because it leads to knowledge. And so then after knowledge, you get enlightenment. Uh, so like that. That's a very beautiful hymn. Very popular Bhaja Govindam, Bhaja Govindam, Govindam, Bhaja Muramati. Oh fool, worship, take the name of God. He saw this person memorizing Sanskrit grammar, sutras. Grammar is in the form of sutras. There are 4,000 plus sutras of Panini. Now one sutra, this, this person was sitting on the, by the bank of the river and memorizing. You have to memorize a lot. So he was memorizing. The sutra goes like this. Dukrin Karane, Dukrin Karane, Dukrin Karane. You sit and memorize. And Shankaracharya felt sad for this person that a few days later he'll die. And all he has done in his lifetime is grammar. And then he, he, he sings, Dinamapi Rajani Sayam Prata Shishira Vasanto Punara Ayata Kala Kridati Gachati Ayu Tadapina Munchati Ashavayu Bhajagovindam Bhajagovindam Govindam Bhajamuravate Prapte Sannihite Kale Nahinahi Rakshati Dukrin Karane. He sings, that he's seeing that person memorize Sanskrit grammar rules, sutras. Um, nowadays you would call them algorithms. <laughs> They're like that. Um, and he says, evening has come. Again it will become morning. Uh, day turns into evening. Um, spring, uh, autumn into winter, winter into spring and so on. The seasons come and go. Time is dancing, kala kridati, time plays on, gachati ayu, your life is running out, never to come back again, your days are running out. Then he says, but the, the flame of this desire, asha here means desire, not hope in the positive sense, that just this little more and then everything will be good. I'll make one more killing on the stock exchange and then I'll be set for life. Uh, 
this gadget, iPhone 8, that, that's, that, that's it. And, and then I'll be really happy. And that thing, and that's it, I'll be really happy. This relationship, that vacation, I'll be really happy. And so on. No. None of it is at the end. Nothing's, nothing in this way, nothing can be, um, uh, nothing will come to a conclusion. It will just go on and on and on. Never, never will you get fulfillment. Then, he says, Worship the Lord, worship the Lord, worship the Lord, you fool. Um, when the time comes, prapte sannihite kale. When the time, the time comes means the time of death. When the time of death draws near, nahi nahi rakshati dukhrin karani. Your Sanskrit grammar will not help you. <laughs> Only the Lord can help you. And it's a beautiful hymn. It goes on and on and on. Very touching. Very touching. So he evokes devotion for God. But here, um, the materialist view is put forward. That's one point of view. Another point of view, it's not the materialist view. It's, um, it could be the Buddhist view. The Buddhist view is the Atman, the self, is not a permanent entity like the Hindus say it, it is. It is born and destroyed every moment. There is a self, but it's a continuous stream. William James, he coined the term stream of consciousness. The Buddhist view is something like that. We are a continuous stream, born and dying every moment to moment to moment to moment. Could be that view also. Um, I think it's basically what Vedic Hindus believed at that time. Not a materialist view, not the Buddhist view, but the view that we are subtle bodies. We are born with the birth of this body. This body dies where we go on with propelled by our past karma to other worlds and other lives and we are born and we die and we are born and we die. That view he is talking about. And why do I think that? We will see the next few verses. They support this conclusion. Now the question here this is that even if you think you are born with the birth of the body and you die with the death of the body and you don't agree to the Vedantic view or the Advaitic view of the Atman, even then you should not grieve. Why not? A powerful verse, 27. This verse is not philosophy, it's common sense. Jatasya hi dhruvom rityu Jatasya hi dhruvom rityu Dhruvam janma mritasya cha Dhruvam janma mritasya cha Tasmat aparihar yerthe very poetic. To one who is born, death is certain. Crisp Sanskrit phrase. Jatasya hi dhruva mrityu. Death is certain to one who is born. Dhruvam janma mritasya cha. And this is more problematic. Birth again is certain for the one who has who's died. He'll go on to other lives, he or she. Therefore, what's the upshot of all of this? The inevitable, the unchangeable, where we have no choice at all. What's the point of bewailing the inevitable? It says that which is a fundamental fact, which cannot be changed at all. Jatasya hidruvomrityu. For those who are born, death is certain. Swami Vivekananda puts it very powerfully. Saints die and sinners die. 
Paupers die and emperors die. The learned die and equally do the ignorant die. All will die. This is certain. It has nothing to do with belief, non-belief, spirituality, science, medicine, nothing. One will ultimately die. Even avatar, whether it's Buddha or Jesus or Krishna or Rama or Ramakrishna, their physical body has gone. One Swami was joking. said, said uh, we use better words when it comes to spiritual personalities. He has ascended to his uh, divine heavenly abode or divine abode. Okay, he may have ascended, but basically it means that the body died. The person is dead. In India, we say for monks, when the monks passed, we didn't say he died. He attained samadhi, mahasamadhi. But basically the meaning is that, that the body is dead, the body is gone. The person is dead. Jatasya hi dhruvo mrityu. A simple fact worth meditating upon. Swami Vivekananda taught this to a disciple. And the acceptance of death, contemplation of death. The disciple said it will lead to, lead to terror and depression. And Swami Vivekananda thoughtfully said at beginning, in the beginning it might. But afterwards will come a great freedom and strength. Jatasya hi dhruvo mrityu. There is no choice here. And you need not be afraid. Sri Krishna says, if you accept the Advaitic point of view, you need not be afraid at all. It is nothing to you really. Just like changing a, uh, a suit of clothes. He said that, like changing clo old, old clothes. If you do not accept the Advaitic point of view, even then it's nothing to you because it's inevitable. And he says, you are not destroyed. The next part is, Dhruvam Janma Mritasyacha. Birth will be is certain for those who have died. Now this phrase, inclusion of this phrase shows that it's not the materialistic point of view. If it was the materialistic point of view, you're dead, finished. No religion is possible, nothing more matters after that. But the moment Krishna says, Dhruvam Janma Mritasyacha, after death, again birth is certain. Propelled by our past karma. So with this phrase, he has introduced the entire karma and rebirth idea which is so common in India. I say India, not Vedanta, not Hinduism. One Vedanta, the great Vedanta teacher said these two things, karma and rebirth. The doctrine of karma and the doctrine of rebirth. In Hindi, karma or punarjanma, karmavad punarjanma. Doctrine of rebirth. These two are truly profound doctrines, teachings. Why? He says, we disagree on almost everything else. Whether God exists or not, Buddhists don't talk about God. Jains don't talk about God. There are schools of Hinduism which do not talk about God. Whether God is with form or without form, whether God exists or not, then what is the way to enlightenment? Is it bhakti, or devotion? Is it knowledge, jnana? Is it meditation? Is it austerity? What is it? Many, many views. Not only that, do you exist? On that also there is dispute. The Buddhist says there is no permanent self. It's a stream of changes, flux. Kshanikam, kshanikam, sarvam, kshanikam. Momentary, momentary, all is momentary. Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. Empty, empty, all is empty. And the Hindu says there is an eternal self. 
all these differences are admitted wide variety of views viewpoints in indian philosophy yet this this vedanta teacher was saying yet these two karma and rebirth are common across the board jaini jains buddhists sikhs hindus and all the varieties of hindus vaishnavas shaivas shaktas non dualists dualists uh, qualified monists um uh, difference identity in difference achintya bheda ved so many schools tantrics everybody except the materialist accepts that there is karma and there is rebirth is a non dualist he says take it seriously ye gambhir baat hai yes rebirth uh, is is it true for jivan mukta people no it's only for the rest of us so for the uh, for what krishna remember up to now krishna was teaching the highest advaita pure consciousness atman it's not born there's no question of rebirth let me tell you this funny story i've told you earlier one of our monks he was uh, uh, in the himalayas in in a little cottage uh, he was studying the hindu or indian idea of rebirth many lives punarjanma and the abrahamic idea that there's only one life Jews, Christians, um, Muslims, they say there's only one life. You didn't exist earlier, you were created by the creator and then this life is there after that you wait in in stasis or something for a long time until you get your heavenly life or the, or the hellish fire whatever. Now there's only one life. You don't get many bodies, many many lives. So which is true? Both can't be true. Though actually both are true. you know how the way i understand it is if you take the broader if you ta- take the holistic world view there are many births and deaths if you take one birth and death that's one life if you don't know what came before that if you don't know what comes after that you will just say there was only one life and this is what this is a conscious choice a conscious choice if you actually go to the bible and the old testament there are any number of references to past lives i was such now i am this So there are many such references. There was uh, a committee in the during the Roman Empire, and uh, they studied this matter. Many lives are one life, and they, the the resolution was that let's let's rule out many lives, and we will decide. The committee decided there is going to be one <laughs> one life from now on, <laughs> because it was not advantageous to a particular Roman emperor. I think something like that. Some some kind of choice was made. So in the ancient history of all religions, many lives are admitted. Anyhow. The point is one life or many lives. So this monk, he was studying both sides and this way and that way, and all the other monks in that cottage they were annoyed with him. They got bored of listening to these arguments. So he took his argument out outside. Um, in an, another ashram nearby, there was a great non-dualist master, a monk, who was an extreme Gaudapada type of non-dualist, Ajatavada, what we are studying in Mandukya Karika. So he goes there. Says Swami, these are the arguments in favor of many lives, punarjanma, reincarnation. These are the arguments in favor of one life. Um, that there's only one janma vada, one life. And then that Swami said, uh, that that teacher, he said, "Oh Swami, why are you talking about all of this when there is no birth? Where is the question of rebirth? <laughs> Read Mandukya." 
Because according to Manduki, you are not even born once, let alone many lives. <laughs> Atman is not even born once. The whole thing is Maya, it's an appearance. In Hindi, he said, Are Mahatma ji, jab janma hi nahi, to punar janma kahe ka. Aap Manduki padhiye. <laughs> and that Swami came back and told me, our Swami, he was furious. You can't argue with these non-dualists. I've got, a, I've got a serious question to ask and he will simply go to Maya and Brahman. And the whole question is dismissed. Yes. But then you said, didn't you say everybody accepts karma and rebirth? So non-dualists also accept, you said? Yes. But remember non-dualism? Vyavaharika paramarthika. Transactional level, empirical level, relative level, this world. Everything is accepted. Paramarthika in the absolute sense? Only Brahman. Um, there was a time when Shankara was teaching and, and the other schools of Hinduism. He said, this Brahman alone is real. World is an appearance. I am Brahman. These fellows are atheists. Some said these fellows are Buddhists. Uh, they, so the, non, the dualist Hindus attacked the non-dualist saying that Prachanna Baudha. These people are crypto-Buddhists. Even now Shankara is called a crypto-Buddhist by some. Because they they seem to deny conventional religion. They ask the dualists, do you believe the Ganges is a holy river? Do you go to temples and bow down before God? Do you perform the ceremonies for departed ancestors, Shraddha? Because you are saying the world is false. You are saying the world is false. So are you denying religion? You guys are atheists. So we had to explain, that is Shankara and his disciples had to explain, that, uh, listen, we accept everything. There are two levels of reality. One is the ultimate reality, which is Brahman, where the question of, there it's not that you do not accept religion and you are an atheist, neither theist nor atheist, nothing matters there. Here in this world, we are as much of theist as you are. We are very happy to go, to, uh, go on pilgrimages and take a dip in the Holy Ganges and any religious activity is very good because we regard it as very good preparation for the ultimate knowledge. At a transactional level, we call it Vyavaharika, relative level. Aren't you studying Vedanta? Where are you studying Vedanta? Is Brahman studying Vedanta or you coming to class and attending classes? If, if that is real, then why can't you go to a temple and bow down or a church and sing hymns? Why can't you do social service and give alms to the poor person? Everything is accepted. Uh, at this level but ultimately from Brahman point of view everything is an appearance and you are you are that ultimate reality so this is this was Shankara's point of view yeah okay quickly some people look at it that way does knowledge start with Vishishtadvaita uh, why only Vishishtadvaita Dvaita let us say we go from a dualistic point of view to a qualified monistic to a non-dualistic point of view. I have no objection and Swami Vivekananda himself has spoken that way, a ladder theory. But the problem is, will the dualist and the qualified monist accept it? That you are the middle rung in the ladder or the lowest rung in the ladder? <laughs> I don't think so. For a non-dualist, no problem. Non-dualist, as long as non-dualism is the highest rung, <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are fine with it. We are fine with it. And the non-dualist does this. But it's a little demeaning for, <laughs> for, for the dualist. Dualist, can the dualist do this? Usually they cannot because the non-dualist can give a relative reality to dualism. 
But the dualist cannot speak in terms of relative reality and absolute reality. For the dualist, there is only one reality. This is it. This is it. Then where is God? Somewhere. There is also a place called heaven. There is God in heaven. And all of this is this one reality. But what the Advaitin does is, this is an appearance and right here is the absolute reality Brahman which we are trying to show you. So, the non-dualist can make space for dualism. Dualism cannot easily make space for non-dualism. That's why you'll find the dualist schools, usually they're furious with non-dualists. And there are dualist schools who say that, um, you know, they will say about other religions in, in Hinduism, they're a little narrow kind of dualists who say about other religions, even they can be rescued. But these non-dualists are the worst. <laughs> they can never be rescued. They're finished. Let me go ahead. So, the whole idea of karma and reincarnation is, in, uh, is introduced here in this little narrow, uh, little phrase. Dhruvam janma mritasya cha. The certain is birth for those who die. When we die, propelled by our past karma, what dies? Physical body. We have discussed this earlier. Three bodies. Physical body, subtle body, causal body. Beyond that the Atman. Now when, the, when death comes, death comes for the physical body. The subtle body and the causal body, they say it sort of curls up into a seed-like form and it goes away. And it is reborn again when it gets uh, another suitable physical body. How, do you, how does it get a physical body? Based on its past karma. We all have enormous stores of past karma. A part of that gives us a particular physical body. That part of my karma which has given me this physical body is called prarabdha karma. Literally if you translate, well begun. It has started to give results. And so whatever I experience in this life, all the major events of my life are because of that past karma. I have a degree of freedom. But my parents, my health, my lifespan. So the lifespan of this physical body depends on that slice of my past karma which has generated this physical body. Once that is exhausted, this body will die. And the next, another slice of my karma will become active and generate a new body for me. Next life. What will happen? The subtle body and the causal body will inhabit that and then slowly develop into maturity as that physical body, it blooms into maturity, then it will start working again. Not very different from when you take, uh, you know, earlier when a computer would crash, we used to have the programs in floppy disk. So we would take the floppy disk and put it into the new computer and it would start working again. Now in the disk itself, floppy disk itself, it's not usable. It's not usable. It's there. Everything is there, but not usable. But once you put it, you need a new computer. When you put it in there, then you can see everything again. Similarly, our subtle body, tendencies, I, um, our uh, karma, our, our vasanas, desires, all are there, but not functioning. They can't function without a physical body. When you are put into a new physical body, as the body develops, that subtle body also develops along with it. And then you get a new life. This is what he means, dhruvam janma mritasyacha, certain is birth for the dead. But for whom? Only for the unenlightened. That we have many lives is not good news for the Hindu. It's bad news. It's a thing to be, to be gotten out of. There was a joke, uh, a cartoon, when this uh, Christian, uh, born-again Christian guy is saying to the Hindu, look, I'm a born-again Christian. 
And the Hindu is saying, oh, I'm a born again and again and again and again Hindu. <laughs> a very cute cartoon. It is to, because why is it bad? Ultimately, it's not bad in itself. It keeps on giving us a stream of experiences. Ultimately, it is bad because it is under limitation. We do not know who we truly are. And it's subject to endless suffering. Endless suffering. Yes. Yeah. Um, one thing that is, you know, you're empowering to me with respect to Advaita Vedanta is nobody is left behind. Yes. Take thousand, thousand lives or hundred lives or whatever. At the end of the day, you are going to realize, you know, the ultimate truth. Absolutely. Not only that, not only at the end of the day, you are that absolute truth right now. <laughs> that, no, th that is most empowering. Uh, even if I do not realize it, I am perfectly safe right now. You are perfectly safe right now. Everything is all right from that point of view. Yes, but remember one thing. Krishna is switching his standpoint here. He notices that Advaita, you say you are finding Advaita empowering. Arjuna was not finding it empowering. <laughs> Krishna notices that. So he's switching to a more common sense approach. Something that Arjuna, being a Hindu of those times, would be more accustomed to thinking. You think that you are born with this body. You existed in other bodies earlier and you will exist later on. That's what you think. He says, yes, that's what we have been taught. Even then you should not grieve for about uh, death of this, this body. That's what Krishna is trying to say. Already, uh, he has said, even if, uh, but if, he has used those words. And that means, all that I have taught till now, Advaita, if it's not sinking in, if it seems fantastic, impossible, uh, in that case, let me give you some common sense advice. That also, uh, it, it will work. That you should not feel disturbed by death. Yes. All right, go on. Um, one can say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Would then would we consider Advaita or religion as a fast track to to the goal of evolution? Correct. Ultimately, many great philosophers have said that the purpose of all of this is enlightenment, freedom, perfection. As different as Shankara and Hegel and others, they have said. Ultimately, it's moving towards. Um, Call it a spiritual realization, call it a perfection, call it an enlightenment. So that's what we are doing. Reading the pages of life in a book. Each page is one life. Turn over a page, one life, gone another. And the soul is, soul means a subtle body. Is evolving, learning, growing. That's one way of looking at it. And what would be the purpose of all of this? Attainment of our real nature, which is infinity. From the limited to the infinite. That's where we are going. The beautiful prayer from the unreal to the real, from darkness unto light, from death. What is death? Not one death. Many deaths. In one way it's more terrifying. Many deaths. Uh, to immortality, beyond death. This thing about being reborn, Krishna puts it nicely. The, for the dead, rebirth is certain. Upanishads give a very shocking language. Mrityu sa mrityu maapnoti naneva pasyati. Who sees plurality here, difference here, dualism here. 
That one, what is the result? That one goes from death to death. Could have been nicer, you know, could have said goes from birth to birth. No, that one goes from death to death, to shock, the shock value. Yes. Okay, the lady first and then the... That is true. You're saying that how is the information transferred? There's nothing obvious going from one body to another in the material world. That's true. If we could find that, then religion would have a scientific basis. There, that's why I said, what Krishna is saying here is not the materialist point of view. It's the conventional religious point of view of ancient Hindus. Bodies die, but you go on. What goes on if you ask, what is the basis for transformation of all the, uh, transfer of all this information? Sukshma Sharira. If you ask, what is Sukshma Sharira? They will say it is made of Sukshma Tanmatra. According to the ancient cosmology, these physical bodies are made of five elements. This is a kind of thinking which many ancient civilizations had. Space, fi uh, air, fire, water, earth. So this is a combination of these elements has made this body. But what... Ancient Indian cosmology goes a step further or deeper. It says our subtle bodies are also made of these elements. These elements have a gross aspect, physical aspect, which is this. So this is earth. In that there will be liquid, that is water. In there it is heat, it's hot. So that is he uh, fire and so on. But there are subtle aspects of this. Um, the five elements come in sukshma and stula. So the, the subtle aspects are called sukshma tanmatra. Yogis are supposed to be able to see that. The subtle, and we also see it in a certain way. How? Think a thought. Feel an emotion. Yeah. Experience a desire, love, hate. All those things which you are experiencing right now, those are the subtle elements. What is happening in the physical body? Neurons are firing in the brain, which is gross element, according to Vedantic terms or Sankhya terms. But what you are experiencing, that is the proof of the existence of subtle elements. You know, I will immediately talk about the hard problem of consciousness here. <laughs> but yes, for the first time in modern science, we have narrowed down the problem. Until you can explain a simple thing like, think of a rose, huh? think of that beautiful flower right now, experience the redness, the shape of the flower. Explain it in terms of neuronal activity of the brain, the experience you are having. You cannot. It's come to a dead end, literally. And I'm seeing now, Time and time again, symposiums, conferences, consciousness, consciousness, what is consciousness? Again, there's a, um, uh, we have an informal sort of philosophy cafe which I wander into sometimes and we discuss it. The next topic is again, um, is consciousness fundamental? It's happening across the top philosophies, uh, neuroscience departments, They're trying to, neuroscience departments are trying to reduce consciousness to the brain. Then your question will be valid. There is nothing which is transmitted after death. How will the subtle body go? Where is the subtle body? Then there is no subtle body. The charvaka will be right. But they are unable to reduce the conscious, to consciousness or mind to the physical brain. Then what is consciousness or mind? You can't deny it exists because you are experiencing it. I am experiencing it. Everybody is experiencing it. In fact, that's all that we experience. The very word experience means consciousness is there. And some kind of subtle body is there. Otherwise no experience is possible. 
So, there is a subtle body, to answer your question, Sukshma Sharira, which goes from physical body, to dead physical body, to a new living physical body, a baby maybe, and then is reborn in that body. It's a proof that it exists. I can give you first person proof that you, you are experiencing it yourself. But show me that it le something leaves this physical body and goes. It must be a kind of matter which we have not discovered. I don't know. That is the question mark. If, if you ever discover that, you know, it will have a tremendous impact. It will prove that religion is real. That something goes on after death will prove that religion is real. All right. Let's. Uh, you had a question at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear them because we have run out of time. Yeah. Second uh, is more of a question. Is we say that Vedanta as well as yoga, they say that when a person attains enlightenment, there is no rebirth. Huh. So are they saying that there is no rebirth because he has seen himself as this uh, larger entity? Yes. Or are they, but at the same time, in the Vavarika level, even after enlightenment, the rebirth of the body will continue. No, rebirth not of the body. After enlightenment, the body, at no, quest, no point is the body reborn. Right? The subtle body is reborn in a new physical body. What happens at death? Yeah. So, uh, to answer that question, it's uh, Upanishads say that at the point of enlightenment, the enlightened person continues as long as the karma for that particular body lasts. That is called Jivan Mukti. When that, the karma for that body is exhausted that body falls apart just like for every one of us but there's a difference the difference is for the, the subtle body also dissolves away for that person for us the subtle body continues why would that happen remember what is the purpose of the whole thing purpose is enlightenment so in one sense the purpose of nature is served and this idea actually has come from a more ancient teaching of sankhya prakriti purusha Prakriti means nature. Nature does everything for the experience and enlightenment, experience and release, bhoga pavarga, of the purusha. That idea is incorporated into Advaita. The subtle body dissolves after enlightenment. Upanishads are there for who say this. Going back to your first question, question is, is Vedanta a solution in search of a problem? Uh, that many lives will be, will be free from the cycle of birth and death. But I don't even know about the cycle of birth and death. I'll be free from a problem which I don't know about. Actually, if you investigate the human condition, you will come across this birth and death problem. as you, It is something pervasive in Indian thought. But that's not the only way that Vedanta can be framed. Suppose, people ask, suppose in a, in a society which does not believe in, believe in past lives and future lives, just this life, does Vedanta have any use? Tremendous use. Vedanta says you can make it neutral from that perspective. You can directly say, what is the purpose of Vedanta? Atyantika dukkha nivritti paramananda praptishya. Complete cessation of sorrow here and now. This life's sorrow. An attainment of deep lasting peace and bliss. This life. 
forget past life, forget future life. You need not talk about it. That was because of the cultural context of India in, in those days. That was the solution to this whole cycle of birth and death. And as that master said, take it seriously. Because you start thinking about life in itself. If you take time to be real, action to be re real, cause and effect to be real, once you take that, and we do take these things to be real, immediately the consequence implication will be, we were and we will be. If we, if we were and if we will be, then in that case, karma and birth and death are there. So it's a, uh, it's a very deep kind of conclusion. Yes, not directly obvious. If it was directly obvious, even materialists would accept it. And if the hard problem of consciousness is solved in that way, that they find something which survives and encodes personal information after death, then you have it. <laughs> if not, you need not talk in those terms. Talk just in the terms of this life. Answer to suffering. All right. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu